This show is brought to you by Onnit.com. Go to Onnit.com and use code word CHURCH to get 10% off of any of their great products like Alpha Brain, New Mood, Shroom Tech Immune, Shroom Tech Sport. This, pro- this show is also brought to you by Iron Dragon TV. That's Iron Dragon TV. They are a channel on Roku with all of the new amazing martial arts movies. And if you use code word Joey right now, you're going to get two free rentals. That's two free rentals of Bruce Lee movies, Ip Man, all those great martial art movies that you love. Go to irondragontv.com. Show's also sponsored by hitesigs.com. That's hit the letter esigs.com. Better tasting, longer lasting. The proof is in the vape. They have e-cigarettes and e-cigars for you. Different levels of nicotine and the e-cigarettes have different flavors if you're into that. Use code word Joey's Church to get 20% off. And for the premier vapor pen on the market, go to naileditlife.com. That's naileditlife.com. They have the pens work with oil and wax. Use code word Joey Diaz, no spaces, and you're going to get 20% off of your order. Oh, shit. Monday, November 17th, the day the devil was buried at sea. Are you fucking kidding me or what? The church or what's happening now? Coming at you, you filthy animals. Oh shit. I'm a lonely man who knows just what it means to lose control. Bam, 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 the one that I'm playing on is it's faster. Oh, it's got Steve Vai in it. Yeah, Stevie Vai, you can hear it. Yeah. You always find the fucked up songs, Lee. Goddamn it. Oh, that's cool. It's it's. Yeah, that was I a little slower. You like the yeah, slower I, version? I, I grew up playing this version. Yeah, but and 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 I really love the feel of it because this is like a '70s vibe, which is what I grew up playing. You know, '70s music. You know, so it's got that really classic rock vibe to it. So by the time we re-recorded the song. Um, the record company wanted more modern. So, you know, it has all these more of an 80s feel to it, but still is an awesome blues song. So what should I search for the newer version? Uh, It's called Slip of the Tongue or or Steve Vai. It's Steve Vai, uh, Full for Your Loving, because Steve uh, played guitar on that one. On the microphone, Mr. Rudy Sarzo, the legendary Rudy Sarzo, Lee Syatt. What's happening, you bad motherfucker? I think I have it. You want me to play it? Yeah, yeah, just little differences. We're just fucking around. Holy shit. Yeah. Oh shit. Now you do everything over the vocals, everything. Oh, everything, yeah, okay. from scratch. Yeah. I was born on the bad side. Left out in the cold. Fuck it. Good enough for me. <laughs> little shout out, little love for Stevie Vai. He's going Steve through some Vi hard times Stevie right Vi. now, right? He's going through a cancer right now. So. Stevie Vai, no. What? Somebody's got cancer. I thought it was Stevie Vai. Maybe I'm oh, wrong. No, but no. if he is, I hope I not. I mean, yeah, I just want to wish him yeah. good luck. He's a dear that. friend, you know. And you know, he really takes great care of himself. He's a vegetarian, vegan. As a matter of fact, when we were playing together in um, White Snake, uh, he turned me on, and I was a vegetarian for five or six years. You know, he turned me on into. 
not, you know, food combining or not combining foods, you know, right in the morning, just having juice and not combining your carbs with your proteins, you know, so your food digests better and stuff like that. So he really takes care of himself, you know, more than anybody I know. So maybe it's not him. I, I'm happy you're not a vegan no more. Cubans are not vegans. You know what I'm saying? They try to slow it down a little bit. Like when a Cuban gets a heart attack, he'll switch it to turkey meat. Like I'll switch the fucking picadilla to turkey meat, but that's as bad as I get. That's his fuck that shit. What's up, Lisa? How was your weekend, buddy? It was good. I, uh, you know, what I'm doing a lot now. Uh, I, I've been on a diet for a few mo- uh, for like six months, and my girlfriend and I are getting sick of it. But I've lived in LA for like four years, and I've never really left the valley. Like, other than working down in Santa Monica, I never left. So we took the train down to Japantown, or Little Tokyo, in downtown. We, we we walked for, like, 20 minutes. We found this, like, revolving sushi bar, like the place that it goes around on the conveyor belt. We walked around there. We went to a couple Japanese bakeries and stuff. It was a lot of fun. Something different. Yeah. You yeah. gotta get out of the valley sometimes. Because, I, I mean, I've lived here for years, and I've, I haven't, I've seen, like, less than 1% of L.A. So it, just, it was fun doing that. You get I stale. I yeah. get stale. I get really stale. That's why I, like going to Long Beach for the last fact. Because I'll sit. I was just telling these guys that. I'll sit at home not to lose a fucking parking spot. Like, if it's between me losing this parking spot or me coming, I'll stay home. And Especially, like, Tuesdays and Thursdays. Those motherfuckers double up on my block. Once you leave, I don't even know where these cars come from. It's like they pop from the ground up or some shit. Right. Well, I, 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 when I didn't have a parking spot at my place, I would never... I would never, ever leave. I don't know how you do it sometimes. I don't know how the fuck I do it. But I had a great weekend. I went to Portland, Oregon. How was it? Fucking shows were great, man. I got to tell you, I lived in the Pacific Northwest, and it's always had this little cool feeling to it, the Pacific Northwest. You know, Portland has really got it down. You know what? Portland reminds me of the old Houston comedy scene, like that people were involved in it. Like the, the, the people went to bars and spoke about the guy performing. They didn't know his name. Just go down there and watch him. Portland has that feel to it. They don't need to know who you are or what TV show you're on or none of that bullshit that comes with comedy. We heard you were funny. We're going to come down here and check you out. You know, everybody brought me reefer and joints and fucking some guy brought the Russian kid, brought blueberry cake that was just brown from the THC. And I gave it out to the staff on Friday night and everybody got ripped. I came the next day and the, and the manager's like, you can't be giving that shit out to my <laughs> workers here. Because the one girl was on the floor sleeping back there, so it was. Uh, Did you ever hear from the convenience store worker who you gave the gummy to? You gave the Gumis Hermanos gummy to like this poor lady. Oh no, no, <laughs> I haven't gone over there. I haven't gone over there to the to the spot. I'll go there to, tomorrow. I got to meet somebody there for coffee, so I'll see you then. But it was just a great weekend. I'm, I really like Portland, and uh, I want to thank everybody who came out. I want to thank Lisa who left me uh, a little. Present for my daughter. She left me a beautiful little like uh, princess dress and a cute little shirt. And I want to always thank uh, Greg and Lynn for always. Uh, they dropped off some medibles and whatnot, so it was pretty nice. Well, it's really cool. Uh, we are, our guest is Rudy Sarzo, and you guys were talking before about Vegas. It must be really cool when you're like you guys travel for a living. For a living, and it must be really. <laughs> cool but I don't travel. To... Rudy travel. Rudy got some freaking motherfucking flyer miles back. <laughs> But you get to go to like different cities and like get like go there a lot and get to know people and it. Must yeah, be fun. you know. It... It depends on the band. Like uh, when I was playing uh, with Blue Oyster Cult, that was the, the last band that I was doing a lot of a lot of uh, weekends. You know, you, which actually do make sense in today's climate, musical climate. The fact that if you can play Thursday through Sunday and go home on Monday and you know fly back out again on Thursday, you're fine. 
because you know if you're going to be playing any uh, Tuesday to Wednesday, they're going to be shitholes. You know, there there's those gigs that you're just doing because you you know because if you don't play. You're going to be on the road, staying in hotels. You know, there's going to be a tour bus to pay for. There's going to be the crew to pay for. So you just want, it's, it's like a shark. you got to keep it moving. So, it, you know, so a band is the same thing. So if you take too many days off on the road, you start losing money. So my preferred way of touring, unless it's like, you know, a real, you know, high-end type of band, is actually just to do weekends. Because that you know those are those are the prime gigs. Those are the the, uh, the B uh, A market and uh, you know or B market, and actually the B market is what I consider now playing casinos. Because when you go into a small town, all of a sudden you realize that there's a casino right down the street, and it's actually one one of, one of the best gigs out there. You know. Do you do the same uh, location for the entire weekend, or do you go into an area and go like an hour away each day? No, I've actually done those. The uh, the residence, you know. Okay. Um, I, I had a gig in in uh, Las Vegas about five years ago. It was called Monster Circus. On the uh, we, actually, we were right after Barry Manilow on that Elvis theater, you know, in the at the Hilton, and uh, I loved it. I loved it because you know you just get up there and. You're staying at the hotel, you fly in. Again, it was one of those weekend things. You know, it was like from Thursday until Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. I think, yeah, Saturday or Sunday was the, uh, you know, four shows a week. And the residents just go home and, you know, have a uh, n normal life. How Now, how is touring? I was looking at you and I'm going, <clears throat> Jesus, I'm going to ask Rudy, how has touring changed in 20 years? Fuck it. I saw years. Rudy 31 yeah. years ago. Yeah. You saw him play? Yeah, thirty-one maybe, yeah, right? Eighty-three. Uh, well, actually, my first, uh, my first tour was in eighty-one, so that's like thirty-three. Eighty-one. Yeah. Eighty-one. I saw it whenever they came to April to the Palladium. Which the band? big show, uh, Ozzy. Oh, Ozzy. That's yeah, the first time yeah. I that was eighty-one. You played with Ozzy. Yeah. 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 Who who have you played with? Because I mean, because it's so Quiet far. Riot, said, Ozzy White Snake, Osborne, Ozzy. White Snake, Dio, oh my God, Dio, Dio. and. Uh, Blue Acer called that I just yeah just mentioned and and who were you originally? Yeah, the Jeff Tate version of Queens Right. Queens Right. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. It's it's so funny that how has it changed in thirty three years? Like when you first started with Quiet Riot, let's say, and Quiet Riot opened for Ozzy for oh no, Quiet Riot opened for somebody for a while. Did they not? Oh God, we uh, we open up for everybody from ZZ Top to Scorpions to Iron Maiden to Loverboy, uh, Black Sabbath, uh, Judas Priest. Now, in those days, did you have a wife? Uh, no, I well, that was eighty three. So I got married in eighty four. So eighty one. How was touring then? You toured every fucking because I remember like looking at a band schedule. Like for me, uh, they would do Philadelphia on Wednesday. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, Newark mm -hmm. on Thursday, <clears throat> and then shoot into New York on Friday or Saturday yeah. or yeah. But I also know that yeah. the, there was no like. Fucking Sunday through Thursday off. You guys were right back at it. We were always on the road. Always. Uh, there was a circuit that you played the A markets, like where you're talking about the Philadelphia's and the New York City and and you know Houston, New York, you know yeah, Houston, yeah, yeah, you know. But then the, we had the uh, the B markets, which were towns that had hockey arenas. A B market, you know, like the uh, minor league hockey arenas. Those were great venues, you know. And so we would do all of those. You know, and uh, it was great because we were really never off. And you really don't want a night off. You know, 33 years ago, 
having a night off meant that you were going to wind up, you know, the next day with a huge hangover because there's nothing to do. 33 years ago, you check into a Holiday Inn, it was a home box office, which really was a box. It was a box with a roll, with a, with a string on <laughs> with, it, yeah, and with the a, three levels. And yeah, 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 and you have basically HBO and whatever channels they had, you know, local channels. That was it. That was your entertainment. So your our, our, our Facebook was actually going down to, to the bar, you know, to meet the fans and, and the crew and the other band that we were touring with. That was our social networking, was going down to the bar. So it meant that you wind up the whole night drinking, you know, and... That really affects you after a while, you know, being on the road. So, um, you know, we had all those distractions. We don't have that anymore. You know, we can actually be very creative because we have all the technology available to us. You know, the same technology that allows our music to be stolen gives us the freedom to create more. Isn't that ironic? It's really ironic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's, it's weird how I used to see those schedules. Like, how has touring changed? I mean... Even with me, when I went on the road 15 years ago, I went on the road with one thing in mind, to do jokes and to get hot, to get fucked up. I, I didn't know when I was coming back. Yeah, I had a plane ticket for Sunday at 3 in the afternoon, but I didn't know if I was going to make that plane or not because I was going deep on Saturday night and I was going deep on Friday night. It didn't matter to me if I got a movie. It didn't matter. And now, Jesus Christ, I'm to the fucking dime. Like, I'm to the dime. Like... I got to be on a, they're picking me up at 4.15 Thursday morning. I'm in bed at 8 o'clock Wednesday night. You know, I get off the plane, I go whatever at 2 to Philadelphia, I take a shower, I relax. Where in the old days, I would go right out. I would just throw my clothes in the fucking room Mm -hmm. and shoot out to do something that had no meaning. No meaning. Until 6.30, I go home, take a shower, and go to the show, then I wonder why I'd bomb. Why did you bomb? Because you haven't relaxed. Your mind hasn't stopped. You haven't taken a minute for yourself. I go out that night, get fucked up, and that's the whole weekend. There was no creativity. There was no... It was just doing the shows. I didn't even look at a notebook. I wouldn't even bring a notebook with me. How could you continue with your career bombing? It was about... It was a 50-50 shot every night. It was a 50-50 shot, and it didn't matter because after the show, I was going to get fucked up and get my dick sucked. So the bombing didn't really... I was bombing... This is my mentality then. I was bombing in a place where it didn't matter. I was trying out a new joke. I wasn't... I wouldn't go prepare. It was just a horrible one. But then I got better and better. I got better about it, and I would bring a notebook and stuff. And some nights I would write coked up. Like I would actually get coked up and write or make believe I was writing. It was a... It really was a disaster. And then... But I still made progress. It was... Or in my mind, I thought I made progress. I started headlining. Obviously, they started headlining me. I didn't take it. it the addiction was the the whole thing. To get away from, at the time, my girlfriend, because I couldn't get high around her. Not that that stopped me. But uh, it was just to get away from her to go and get high. I remember I used to do two weeks in Texas. From 2003 to 2006, or 2002, the club owner would headline me over the holidays. And I would do two weeks. Every night, Rudy. Every night. I remember I, I just the other day, I just a cold case was on. You know that show Cold Case that was on for a while? And I'm on one of the episodes. I shot that on the Monday after the holidays. You know that two-week break you have? Yeah. Like, I had to shoot that, like, January 4th. Oh. And I came back that January 3rd. I wish you guys looked that episode up and see how big I am. I had to be 420. That's when I was walking around at, like, 410. 
But after those two weeks, I was just, you, you could see it. You couldn't even see my eyes from the bloating, from being bloated, from all the eating salt, eating restaurant food, french fries, you know, not taking care of myself. And now it's completely different, Rudy. Now it's completely different. I got a question for you because, you know, I, I used to play with Sam Kennison. You know, we shared the same management. I played on his records. We became friends. I went to a lot of his gigs. And uh, what he used to do was at the end of the show, he would bring out a band. Right. You know, right. most of his buddies, you know, kind of like an all-star band. And we would do Wild Thing. Where I, I actually play, played on that record. And I was in the video. And I remember him going out on stage really messed up. I mean, like, you know, drunk and, you know, coke. And, and he would bomb. But people would still show up. It was crazy. You know, maybe it was like to see a train wreck or something. They go, it's like the same thing. Who's the chick that died two years ago? I don't want to go house. to rehab. At the end, you knew the bitch was either going to cancel, be fucked up, sing a song and give you the finger and leave. People still paid the 120 to go see it. Yeah. Well, is it people it, love a train wreck. Yeah. Is it different with bands? Because with comedy, it's... Only you talking. So, like, the, it's e would it be easier to tell if you were messed up? Oh, please, yes. And then, but I would imagine being fucked up messes with, with you playing music. It must. Oh, yeah, yeah, you can't play and, and be uh, screwed up. No, no, it's impossible. Um, especially if you're playing some quality music. You know, I, I mean, I can tell you because I, I, I experienced that. I mean, <laughs> there was a show in Kansas City one time. I was playing with Ozzy, and Ozzy used to, like, take, take B12 shots. <laughs> so the promoter could only find a dentist that would come to administer the B12 shots backstage, you know. So the guy goes over to me on the side right before I was going on stage and say, "Hey, you want a bump?" And he got remember the old days there were those little bottles, yeah, yeah, the little carburetors. It was like, like what do you call those? It was like a little bullet. Oh, and you turn the thing yeah, around, yeah, and, you went, no, yeah, and then yeah, you turned yeah, it around yeah. again. It like, yeah, yeah, like yeah, a little no, bullet. Right. Yeah, yeah. So I go, yeah, what the hell? He's a doctor. You know, it must be someone like, you know, really good, you know, prescription, you know, cocaine, I guess, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I did it. It was the only time that I've ever did it, you know, uh, on, you know, with Ozzy going on stage. And I'm telling you, I spent half the show, I, I, just, I just wanted to, like, not die. It's terrible. <laughs> it is awful. It's, it's so terrible. I, I would, with all these problems I had, I did have one piece of thing that kept me together. March 17th, 1992, I got on stage coked up. I never got on stage coked up ever again. Why do you I remember the date? Because I bombed that bad. Oh, it was two different. I thought that, wait a second, if I do two lines... I'm gonna get chatty, and I'm gonna go up there and just chit chat. I'm gonna be fucking great. Yeah. Nobody's figured yeah. this out yet. Yeah. Richard Pryor figured it out. Sam yeah. Kennison got it, and now I got it. And I went on stage because the cocaine cuts your heart from your material. It cuts mm -hmm. it. That's why you can't be funny. Yeah, you'll get away with some jokes. There's some jerk offs. They'll laugh, but you don't sell the joke. The joke isn't being yeah. sold. It's just like reading a book. So he went out and he, yeah. whatever. That's what it felt like to me. Yeah. I could tell if I did too much coke the night before, it would affect yeah. my stand-up. Even if I didn't do yeah. coke the whole day, it would affect my stand-up. I couldn't control my mind. Was it like a hangover? Yeah, it was like a hangover, but it was like a, a mental. You can't, you, your heart and your mind aren't connecting. Your, yeah. your mouth and your heart and your soul are not connecting. It's very weird to explain. See, in, in addition to affecting your, your physically, 
I mean, your 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 you know your your emotions. It affects your your body. It's like it affects the the blood flow to your ears. So you start to hear more bass than treble. And if you're on stage and somebody's doing blow, they, this is going to start turning around and saying that you're playing way too loud, where you you're just playing at the same volume as you always play, right? And if you there's certain records that if you go back in the 70s and you listen to them and the bottom is gone it means that they spend they were they were they spent the night mixing those records and to overcompensate they lower the bass the, the you know the uh, the bottom end of the record so it sounds like sizzling like pss, a lot of highs they were on blow when they were mixing that you know and a lot of records were mixed like that back in the 70s because, you know, you had a, uh, a deadline. You know, you have to, like, you spend so much time recording it. And the record company says, oh, listen, we're coming back tomorrow to pick up the, the record, the mix record. And then they'll take it and master it and then, you know, release it. So a lot of these guys were under the gun, you know, and do, because if you're going to do a mix a night, it's going to take you two weeks to do it. And sometimes you just didn't have two weeks. You would have, like, maybe one week. So you're trying to compensate by just doing, staying up, long enough to do two mixes a day like those i just read on youtube uh, about a month ago they had a campaign about volume four the album black uh, sabbath yeah and what the the whole part of it was that the first four black sabbath black sabbath albums i guess were recorded in one night mm -hmm. like the first one one night yeah, yeah, the yeah. second one one night yeah, i don't yeah. know how true yeah. it is whatever they were yeah. saying how does that happen? How do you fucking go into a store? I mean, I always want well, to be a musician. Easy, easy, easy. Because don't you have to? All right, easy. so let's say Snowblind. All right, Rudy, we're doing okay. Snowblind. Yeah. One, two, yeah. three. First of all, we don't even do it together. Yeah. You lay the bass first. Oh, no, no, no. How do you do it? Uh, not like hit, that. Hit back in the day, back in the day, a lot of the bands would go on the road and they would do all of these, uh, you know, they played everywhere. Back in the day, you you start your tour like in Stockholm or somewhere in Scandinavia, and you do like a Scandinavian tour, which means that you're testing your material to go in the studio in a couple of weeks, right? So you do all these tours to get the band tight and get paid for it. That was like pre-production. And then you go in the studio, and then you do like one or two takes of each song, and you're done. You're done. Like in, in, in the days when people used to record in the same room, with a, with a really good engineer that knew how to mic everything and and yeah, that that's the way it used to be done. No, lay your track. Nah, lay your baseline. No. Nah. So, like I, I read the the the, first, the one Aerosmith book, the one from '98, when they talked about how much they hated each other, mm. and in '75. So, uh, Joe Perry would go down and do the guitar. Like they had to yeah. sign a sheet. They all lived in the same house, but they had to sign a sheet to go into the recording studio one at a time. They wouldn't get along. So everybody, the drummer went. So yeah. did you play the song first and everybody left and then you redid your bass lines and he did his guitar? Was that how it was done? Because I'm fucking confused here. I'm blown Yeah, away. listen, all the, like, like if you, if you read about the Beatles, they, you know, that first record they did with George Martin, they actually did that in one day. They did, you know. So it, and it was like, what, 14 songs, 15 songs? Because in America, we would get 10 songs per album. But in the, in the UK release, it was the, actually the full record, the 15 songs or whatever they happened to record. You know? And uh, I, I think that what happened was in America, uh, engineers and producers, are, they, 
they either got started getting picky or lazy. Because the guys back in Europe, you know, in England, all those English engineers and producers, they had it down. They knew. I mean, I worked with some of those guys. And they don't over... Look, it got so bad that you had to spend one day just to get a snare sound back in the 70s. If you were going into a, to make a record, it was a given that the first day was just drums. And you would spend most of the day just getting a stupid snare sound. Come on, you know, just put, if you know, if you know what you're doing, you just put maybe three mics, the best setups I've ever, I've ever played with, just three mics, one on the kick, one on the snare, one overhead, and that's it. Most of the, of the classic rock records we listen to, that's the way that they were recorded. And then either direct or, or, or both, you know, you amp uh, the, uh, you put a mic on the, on the uh, bass amp and direct, and then, a, a, you know, you get isolation rooms. You know, all the studios were designed like that, so you I, isolate your amplifiers. Or in the case of, like, what the Stones used to record, you know, they, they did exile on Main Street in, um, in, a, in a house that uh, Keith Richards rented in the south of France. You know, and they took the basement and they just, you know, make baffles to separate the amplifiers. And... That's how they did it, you know, and they, those are classic albums. They have a vibe. They have soul to it. You know, we were talking about the soul in your material when you're delivering it. That's what's missing when you start separating people and, you know, one guy, I, I do a lot of records nowadays in my pajamas at home with my little dog watching me because I'm, they send me the tracks. Are they, are they going to be timeless records? No, no, no. To me, a timeless record. Everybody has to be in the same room to actually to record that. What's is it? Is it like a feeling? Is it like, like kind of like the room has like a like when oh, like the band's playing together? Is it oh, like I, I, right near right now? We're experiencing it. Okay, we you and I we did a podcast. Um, it's way different this one because I'm looking at you. You're looking at me. We're we're communicating in the same room. You know, it's not like me at home with my telephone, you know, right, my cell phone, it, talking right. to you, calling in. Okay, yeah, it was good, but it doesn't have that that intimacy that we're having now. You know, it's amazing. We, we were talking about a band, how you yeah. have so many different personalities yeah. to deal with. And you were saying how lucky I was uh, because when you do comedy, it's just you and the microphone. You just got to show yeah. up at a bar, plug it in, and fuck it. You go yeah. crazy. Yeah. For a guy like me... When I was growing up, I read all those magazines. I read Circus, mm -hmm. and I read about recording sessions, and, mm -hmm. I, and, I, and my dick used to get hard. Like just, you know, the Stones going to Jamaica. Are you fucking kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? Everybody going to Jamaica for two months, you know, whether we like each other mm -hmm. or not. We got a big bag of reefer. We fucking get a couple black chicks, and we start, you know, whatever. <laughs> to me, that was phenomenal. Exile on Main Street. Now, what happened with Exile? It wasn't somebody owed money. Didn't somebody owe money? That's why they were hiding. That's why they were in France. Somebody was looked for. Either Keith Richards yeah, was looking. Somebody were, was looking for somebody. You know, I mean, there's a documentary about it, and they, they touch on it lightly because it was basically a documentary, Exile on Main Street documentary. If you got Netflix, you can watch it on that. Um, it was basically about the making of the record. But, you know, it was uh, they were tax... Uh, Right, tax. Yeah, uh, it was tax. Yeah, tax. Uh, because in England, if you made a certain amount of money, if if you stayed in the country, you had to pay so much taxes. So if you make the record somewhere else, you know, you you're not going to be hit with all those taxes. Yeah. Do you prefer working solo or with a group? Because I, I've worked with a few comedians, and comedians don't really tour that much together. Some of them do, but not really. It's like a single person. I would imagine with a five or six person group. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, combat is more like boxing. Yeah. It's only like two guys in the ring at the time. You know, it's, it's a men on, you know, one-on-one, you know, a, 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 a band is really a, a team sport. Does it, but how often does it go bad? Like, how often do people hate each other and fight about money? And... How many teams? How many? Name a sport. I mean, is there any happy team? No, of course not. I mean, there's something, something going on. Because everybody, we were talking about this. That's the crazy factor. You have to be crazy to to do what you do, Joey. I mean, it's, you know. To no, be, I've always known it. I spoke know, to my wife crazy. about it last yeah. night. I was talking, we were talking about something, and she goes, is that person Joey Diaz crazy? Or the other crazy, yeah, yeah. and I go, Joey D is crazy. He's yeah. crazy, but he's not like hearing yeah. voices and shooting yeah. people. And I mean, like you know, that. to be crazy doesn't mean to be evil. Right? No, it's no, just, no, no. It's, it's just, just crazy. like outside of the box. You know, you're doing, you got dreams, and you just go for them. You know, no, you, you're not going to listen to to everybody else telling you, oh no, because you're you're whatever you are, you're never going to make it, and and whatever. So you leave town because you want to get away from these people, and you wind up whatever you think the. Uh, the all the opportunities are to me it was LA you know because the record companies were here and and all the musicians that thought like-minded were here so I joined a band and I slept on the floor and I you know and, and I did all this crazy shit you know that if I look back at it now and go oh my god how did I have the balls to do all of that and I but I did you know and again if you lose that edge that craziness you're in trouble because you're gonna you're, you're not gonna move forward you're not gonna progress. It's the craziness that will keep you going forward, getting better, getting crazier. I always thought when I got off drugs that my comedy was gonna be done. That was one of the reasons towards the end I didn't wanna get off the blow, or nothing. And then I thought about it and I was like, wait a second. I was always fucking crazy. I just went to Miami and I saw people, they were holding Los Santo Mio for 35 years. They held a bunch of my stuff t-shirts and trophies and and I went down there and I started talking to her and I said you know I was going to your house on 148th street and she goes when I first met you she goes I, I, she goes when you called I started thinking about you you know and how our evolution you know she was 18 and I was six when I met my godmother's daughter we all got back together and I used to go to 148th street and she goes you were a quiet fucking kid she goes you built models she goes, you had a million fucking models. She goes, you would lock yourself in a room and put on music and, and, and build models all fucking day. Ten hours. Three, four models in a day. It was brilliant. You paint them and like this. I don't remember. I really don't remember like a little thing. Really? And she goes, but then you got hit in the head with that lunchbox. And that was the beginning of the end. She goes, not that the lunchbox made you crazy. You just didn't like it. It brought the real inside of you out you were scared you were timid you didn't know the language she goes but once they hit you in the head with that lunchbox that day everything changed she goes you became aggressive you became you got stitches and even in the hospital i remember you told us that night at dinner at your, at your mother's bar you said this will never happen to me again Nobody will ever hit me in the fucking head with a lunchbox. In fact, I'm going to hunt them down tomorrow. And they all looked at me like, Jose Antonio, you can't go hunting these kids down in Central Park. And I went to Central Park by myself. And then when I moved to Jersey, I was so insecure about being Cuban that the first day I went out, there was a fight. And I knew for me to get through to these guys, I had to jump in that fight and stick up for this kid that was getting beat up by himself. 
as crazy as it was, he was one kid against eight. That's as crazy. Those are, Bruce Lee can't do that shit. But in the back of my mind, I knew, I knew for me to get into this neighborhood. I had just come from New York City where there was a couple Spanish people. There's Puerto Ricans, you know, whatever in the neighborhood. I was moving to North Bergen, New Jersey in 1960, 1970. There's not too many Spanish people. They were in Union City. They were that way, and they were in West New York. They weren't in North Bergen. So that I lived in that house for a year before I went out. Do you know that? A year I lived in that house. I would always go to my mother's bar in Union City. I wouldn't go play with the kids in the neighborhood. And my mom would tell me, Oye, calabaza, calabaza, todo mundo va. You got to go. You got to go play. And one day I left with my white clothes on because I used to dress on. You know, my mom used to dress me in white with the, with the white sneakers with a gold chain. And I went around the corner, I heard them yelling and screaming, and I jumped in and backed that kid, and my life is, I never looked back. I always had to follow that mentality. I always had to be fucking nuts. But what people didn't know was that I wasn't trying to be nuts. I really was fucking nuts. You know, it just came to me natural. And then as I got older, I got the Cuban in me, and I worked very hard to get that Cuban man out of me. The jealousy, the the quick reaction, the hand. My hand would come up first. I wouldn't even give a fuck. I'd come flying through a window. I worked hard to get that out of my system. Like, I really had to work hard to get the cubarismo. What do you call it? The guanazo out of your system. Because it was going to take me down. It still takes me down. That's why I avoid a lot of different situations. You know, we're going to have Steve Byrne on the podcast here in a couple of weeks. And he called me this year to ask me if I wanted to do his show. And I thanked them because I go, the last time I saw you, I, I, I was very crazy. I went at somebody at the comedy store. And as they were breaking us up, I remember looking, and it was Steve Byrne, and looking at his face going, holy fuck, this guy's nuts. And my anger wasn't towards Steve Byrne. But him seeing me in that situation always made me very embarrassed in front of Steve Byrne. I never wanted to see Steve Byrne again. If he wouldn't have called me, I wouldn't have been his friend anymore because he saw me. It's like the night I stuck up for Marilyn. My friend died, and somebody kept torturing her when she was alive, this fucking producer from L.A. And at the wake, he showed up to the wake. He had the balls to show up for the wake. You know me, Doug. That's my fucking realm. I'm, I'm from the world that I would die. If you're going to come, you, how are you going to bust somebody's balls when they're alive then walk into his wake? Not when I'm alive. Not on my fucking clock. And I went off, and that reputation followed me in L.A. People don't mess with me because I went off. I made the guy leave. I told him, I'm going to get off this stage. When I get off this stage, I'm going to go at you, your attorney, and your wife. And I meant it. I didn't care. I, in my world, where I come from, that's, I'm fucking nuts. But I work very hard. For people don't see that, I work very hard. I avoid a lot of contact with people. I already know this. I knew this at 30. I knew when I got out of prison that that was one thing for me to do what I was doing as a comedian, that I had to calm that down because, and that's why I avoid it. I avoid it, number one. Number two, when something happens, I attack that situation right off the bat so it doesn't eat away at me. Can't eat away at me because if I let it eat away, you know, and I see you, then it's going to be bad for you. It's going to be really fucking bad for you. So I can't let it eat away on me. I really can't. I get fucking hot. So I got to call you at your house and go, Abe, dog, this is the situation. And if you hang up on me, then I'm going to go to your house and light it on fire. That's how crazy I am. That's how fucking nuts I am. And I, it's just, I don't want to hit nobody. I just don't want nobody going to eat. I don't like, I'm from old school. You don't even, if, what's the, my favorite line in The Godfather is, they should have they should have stopped, stopped Hitler, Hitler in Munich. Munich. They, if they would have stopped in Munich, 
we wouldn't have had this fucking problem. But, and that's what I'm, that's why I go crazy. And I've worked very hard to eliminate that from my life, you know, to eliminate that, uh, whatever. So that's the craziness I have. But it's a thin line. It's the same craziness that fueled me to keep doing what I do because my thing that fuels me is I'm proving a fucking point to you. I'm proving a point that when we went and told people that we were going to be comedians, they told me I was a felon. They told me I was too old. They told me it was too hard. They told me a thousand reasons why, but I believed in myself. And I also believed that if they knew about my life and who I was inside, it would help me. And that's that craziness is what keeps me waking up every morning to prove my point, that anybody could do what the fuck I do. You know, everybody tells you you can't do this, you put limitations on yourself. This morning I got in the car, I was gonna go to jujitsu. And in the car this morning, I was talking myself out of it, Rudy. Talking myself out of it. But then that Cuban voice that says, God and all those bad words came and I fucking shot down the Beverly Hills. So that crazy, you're right, that crazy is what fuels me. What brought the conversation up was, we had lunch one day, and you had said to me that in the music business, there's a thin line between mental health and the artist. Mm-hmm. And it's the same thing in comedy. I mean, you're right. What makes somebody get up and say, I'm going to fucking live three or four years in this life of sleeping in floors? You know, and everybody's done it. If you listen to oh, Guns N' Roses, yeah, yeah. Slag, yeah, you know, yeah. Aerosmith. Everybody's fucking paid that price where you got to eat a bug one day. Yeah. You got to eat a Coke snot. That's it. That's all there is. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. But you know what? Like like you, I've, you know, I know you, and I used to hang out with Sam Kinison and a bunch of other... Um, Jimmy Schubert, who did that yeah, show Jimmy, a couple Jimmy Schubert and comedians and... All you guys, as crazy as you are, you guys are the nicest people, most generous people I've ever known. Sam was, out of his mind, generous. I mean, like, beyond, I mean, it was, like, embarrassing generous, you know, type of a guy. So it's, again, going back to being crazy, it's not about being evil. None it's of that about at all. Not, not knowing any boundaries. No boundaries. You know, Who gives a fuck? you're limitless to what you really want to achieve in life, you know. Now, were you there the night that Sam and uh, Billy Idol went on it? Oh, God, I was on stage. What yeah, happened? The, uh, what uh, the was... fuck happened? <laughs> <laughs> Caesar's Palace uh, in Las Vegas uh, is, is very simple. Uh, Sam was, you know, he used to do two shows a night. So on the first show, he, he hadn't gone to sleep for about two or three days. You know, so we were up at suite. Uh, Lenny Bruce's uh, uh, mother mom was there because she always hung out with Sam and uh, you know and, and the whole gang the uh, Carla Bow Carla Lenny Bo, Clark yeah, yeah. Mitchell Walters yeah. Alan Steffen Alan know, Steffen uh, yeah all of the Jimmy Schubert you know, all those guys and uh, <laughs> so Sam used to bring on stage Sabrina and Malika, Malika, who became Malika became his wife and Sabrina was his sister-in-law right and they would be dressed like showgirls you know, Las Vegas showgirls outfits with the feathers because they used to be showgirls before they met. So we're on stage doing, playing Wild Thing, you know, the song. And Billy Idol is there, you know, and he's on stage doing his Billy Idol thing and he starts grabbing Malika and Sam, which has a, you know, he went nuts, you know. So we get off the stage, go back up to his... uh, Sweet, and he's like throwing shit around, and <laughs> he's just like 
going insane. He's saying, next time on the next set, I'm going to fucking deck up, you know, on stage, you know, all of that. So second show comes around and he does his, his comedy and then we do our, 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 our song and Billy was gone. But his, his uh, sidekick was there. So Sam just decked his friend because he couldn't get to Billy. And, that was, and that, that's what happened. Caesar's Palace. That must have been fucking... Listen, the reason why I got into comedy was after I read the Lenny Bruce book. Mm-hmm. I was wafering. Like, I was wafering. I didn't know what I was going to do with my life. I was leaning towards comedy. But once I read Ladies and Gentlemen, mm-hmm. I knew it was for me. And when I was seeing all that, I mean, uh, when I was watching Sam go crazy, and I knew he had the outlaws and the craziness and the fucking hotels and the crashing cars, that was another part that lured me to this... Craziness. It's, it really is craziness. When you were there, when you were part of this, were you looking around saying to yourself, this is just insane. This guy's a comic. Yeah, yeah it was. Playing more, fucking music. And it was more insane than any musician I've ever been around. Yeah. It was beyond rock and roll. It was comedian crazy. <laughs> Richard Pryor stuff, you know, it, it was level, you know, it wasn't, yeah. And you're talking to a guy who, who was in the same band with Ozzy. I played with Ozzy, but no, Sam Kinison was more crazy than, than Ozzy. Yeah. I can't even imagine that yeah. shit. Yeah. This morning I was driving yeah. and they were talking about the Pink Floyd album, the new Pink Floyd album. Did you hear it yet? I haven't listened to it. But the beauty of it was that two weeks ago that fuck Roger Waters came up and said, I have nothing to do with this album. You know? And... You have, in a band, you have these four people, and there's always this one little ego that floats around, but he controls it or he doesn't. To me, these egos destroy the music business with their craziness. One is Roger Waters. I don't know. You know, I've never met David Gilmore. I don't know how crazy he is or the rest of the guys. I don't know what happened, but I know it. When I think of crazy ego, I think of Roger Waters, and I think of Sting, as much as I love Sting and as much as I love the police, you know. What I mean, do you know? I mean, how the fuck does this happen no. that your importance? Because when I was thinking about like Sting, for example, like, so you're that important that you're gonna break up this band and take away from us fans for your ego. The same thing with Roger Waters, and then the fucking guy goes, you know, I don't know what David Gilmore says. I don't know. He goes to release this album, and Roger Waters says, I have nothing to do with this album. It's just an album of instrumentals, right? That's not, I don't even know if you know about it. That's a fucking no, it's just you know people like that. It's just I have never heard what the voices in their heads are saying or what they sound like. So it's kind of hard for me to be put myself in, in that, that position because there's gonna be some crazy motherfuckers going on in his head telling them shit. Well, don't I mean it's kind of what I was talking asking earlier. Like if you were in a band, not maybe not you, but don't don't think a comedian since they're always by themselves. Like if you were suddenly in a band with a group of people. Don't you think that ego would ha- the same thing would happen? I think I'm surprised it doesn't happen more. I don't know. I, I got a question for you. Do you consider yourself an artist? Me? Yeah. Yes and no. Because that's a problem with musicians, or most of them who consider what, this is art, what I'm doing, and I'm not doing it to please the audience. I'm doing to please my, the, my artistic intentions or vision do you ever go on stage like that no <laughs> no never 
That's why I don't like the word artist as much as it's used, especially in this town, especially in life. I'm an artist. So for me, when you say you're an artist, that means you got a trust fund and your parents send yeah. you money every month yeah. and you get to try different shit every month. Yeah. That's what you're telling me. You know, when, I, when somebody says artist, my ears always go up. And I look over at a at a coffee shop because that's where I hear well, that. That's word. what I yeah. You just mentioned yeah. When I think of an artist, I think of Van Gogh. Right. He sold one painting to his brother. <laughs> yeah. One yeah. in his lifetime and cut his ear off. You know? Right. No, I think of if somebody refers to themselves as that, but I get the art and I get that what I'm doing is an art, mm -hmm. and because of that, maybe I'm an artist mm -hmm. because a stand up is set up punchline, joke telling, and storytelling. You know, I, I take that and I mix it around. That's the art. Yeah. When you learn to play the bass. But we learn to play instruments so we can deliver a message. And a, a message. message, there's a structure just like you have in your storytelling. Right. It's the same thing with a song. There's a structure to it. So there's, yes, so there's definitely an art to being a comedian, you know, because you're telling a story, you're conveying, you're putting a, people in a state of hopefully happiness when you tell your jokes. And and from the moment there's a middle, I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a beginning, a middle, and an end to your act. So there's an artistry to it, just like being a musician. But I don't think you take it as seriously as a lot of these guys. No, 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 no. No, I, I consider art like the first instrument I ever played was the bass. Mm -hmm. I learned the pastoral music. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I didn't like the bass because it was boring as fuck until I watched you play it. Mm -hmm. Then I wanted to go sign up again. Do you understand me? Yeah. It's your, that's what I call the artist. Your yeah. interpretation of yeah. what I just showed you. There's a thousand yeah. front kicks. There's yeah. a thousand front kicks, but the way yeah. you throw it, that's your art. Well, it's because I, I, I went to a lot of shows in Miami and I saw, like, Miami was a really a unique place to play back in the 70s because it was either the beginning of your tour or the end of the tour because logistically, Uh, a lot of the bands that came from England, you know, Europe and England, would come in and bring their equipment through the port, you know, Florida-Dale, Miami port. That's how they brought their gear. So they would either begin the tour there and they would rehearse at the Sportatorium for a week. And, you know, so you either saw the first show, which was really not the best of their tour, or you saw the last show, that traditionally the last show with English bands, they used to pull all these gags on each other They would like throw uh, whipped cream and get ahead with eggs during the set and stuff like that. So you either so if, either ways you were going to see a pretty shitty show because it was going to be the, the first show or the last show of the set. So I saw a lot of boring performances from a lot of guys that were really high because in, a, plus in addition to that was the drug capital of the world at that time in the 70s, you know. So they were like high on blow, heroin, or, or, or booze, or all, all of them at the same time. So I, I, I said, you know what? I never want to be one of these guys. You know, the guys that just stood up there and, and just they were basically like, you know, mannequins on stage, right. you know, playing because they were, they were so high. Not because they were bad, but they were, they were just so high at the time. Yeah. So that's why. Fucking crazy. <laughs> See, for a long time, I thought they started a lot of tours in Philly. For years, I would, I would look at the schedules, and I would see tours starting in Philly, and I thought it was because Philly is such a rough place to play. You want to get it out of the fucking way. That's what I always thought. I didn't know why. Because I seen the Stones in Philly, and it was the first night of their tour. And I seen ACDC at the Palladium, and it was the second night of their tour, and they started in Philly. So I'm like, oh, I never even thought fucking bands played in Miami and shit. 
How hard is it to tour? Because I've been lucky enough to go with Joey for a couple weekends. And I'm not, I'm not even performing. But leaving on Thursday morning, coming back Sunday morning, I, I know I'm exhausted. Like, I can't imagine doing a month on a on a bus going to radio. Um, do you do radio or do you, are you just sleeping all day and then doing the show? Like, what's you know, it like? It, it all depends on the, uh, the quality of people that you're touring with as human beings. If you can really have fun and really respect and vice versa, they respect you. You could have the worst, you could be playing the worst shitholes. But if you really love the people and really love the music, it doesn't really matter what the conditions are. I've been in some great traveling conditions with with some tours that and people that I have not. I would just wish and couldn't wait for it to be over, just because you know. It, to me, the most important thing is the quality of the people that you're touring with, really not the accommodations. No, you're right. You're absolutely right. What was the most fun you had on the tour? Uh, I. No yeah. drugs, just fucking oh, no, guys no, getting together no, no. and jamming and, you know. Yeah, I, you know, it, it's nothing has come close to to the significance of, of the Blizzard of Oz, Diarrhythm, and Mad Men tour with, with Randy and the Ozzy. Well, actually, both, you both. know. Yeah, and Tommy. Yeah, every night on stage was the Super Bowl every single night. Uh, the quality and, of course, you know, we had the tragedy happen to us. I would say second would definitely be either... White Snake or Dio because I really love touring with Ronnie. Ronnie was he's, my God. It was, was he really from New Jersey? Uh, no, Cortland, New York, upstate New York. Upstate New York. Yeah. But he lived in New Jersey or something. Somebody said they um, saw him once in New Jersey. I'm like, come on. Like, yeah, yeah. I, 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 I wouldn't doubt it, doubt it because after Rainbow, he came back to the U.S. and, and lived in, in, in the Northeast, you know. And then he moved back to L.A., when he then started Black Sabbath, all of a sudden, you know, after that. It's it's funny because uh, you talk about the Super Bowl or mm. whatever. But on the other side of that, I still remember buying a Cream magazine and reading how Black Sabbath had just broken up. And it, it was fucking traumatizing. Like, it was just traumatizing. I couldn't even think. Like, yeah, I like Led Zeppelin. Then, then once the drummer from Led Zeppelin died... There was a point where I was just lost. You know, my, my mother had just died. The music and the reefer was everything. And all of a sudden, you know, Black Sabbath broke up. And I'm reading this Cream magazine in February, freezing my ass off that they broke up. And all of a sudden, uh, John Lennon gets shot. You know, and I go to Bleaker mm. Bob's in the city, this fucking tremendous record store. And I find this EP by the Blizzard of Oz. And it's. Four songs, maybe, you know. 81, yeah. And I'm like, what the fuck? And listen to me. And I'm telling you guys, this is, and I remember the people I went with, I could call them right now and have them call in. You know, this was everything to us. Well, you probably got the uh, the UK the pressing. The UK first. The, the I got the, the four songs first. That was in 1980 because that was, in, yeah, in, that was, in, in 81, that's when they actually released Blizzard, Blizzard, Blizzard. In, in the States. So yeah. it was John Lennon got shot December yeah, 8th December, or something. Yeah, December. So yeah. it was December or whatever when I went yeah. to the city. They were doing something at Strawberry Fields, whatever. Mm-hmm. I didn't go that way. I went into the village. In fact, what did I go see? No, no, I was a different year. I went to the village and I got that that EP I just found it by mistake it mm-hmm. wasn't that I was looking for it or I knew about it and then in uh, Cliffside Park New Jersey is a place called Things from England they're still Steve they're Steve still, Lang it's Steve Lang they're still there yeah. it's, in fact you've seen it it's next yeah. to Rudy's yeah. oh okay Rudy's fucking Rudy yeah. it's up the block 
Well, the guy who owned the place, Steve Lang, he uh, he passed away a few years ago, but really? it, was, it was a really good friend of, of my brother, Robert, and me. Yeah. He's still open. Yeah, still it's open. still open. Yeah, yeah. Things I, from England. I, I think yeah. that's where I yeah. bought the Aussie tickets. Yeah. That's where I would buy everything, because he always used to buy mm. a block for himself. Yeah. So he'd tell you, if you're in a bind, come open, I'll try to hook you up. I know yeah. friends. Great guy. Great guy. Great this guy is Steve. fucking yeah. crazy yeah, great guy. that I just said that. Things yeah. from England. I bought so many things there. I bought so many like UK releases there, you yeah, know, as a child. Yeah. Like anything from UFO, I bought tons of shit, even if it's twenty dollars more than the regular album. I tell them to put it away to the side. There was no fucking layaway then. You just looked them in the eye and said, "Dog, put that away. I'll be here Sunday. If you're not here Sunday by one, I'll sell it." And he'd sell it. Things from fucking England. Yeah. That's amazing. How has or do you think that world still exists? Because now with digital, like people just go online and buy. Like do. You, does that even still exist to you go know, to a store and find, I find that CD? I find that people usually download stuff that they will never buy anyways. If you're going to buy something, you be, it's because you're a collector and your heart is into it. So you're going to buy it. Uh, I talk to I talk to a lot of kids and they say, you know, I just I download it because I want to see what it's all about. And they're really not into it. They're kids. They didn't grow up with that music. They're stealing music that they didn't grow up with her, so they don't have any emotional connection with it. To them, it's just like, uh, let me check this out. It's like us listening to the radio, you know? And they would not buy it anyways. But even with, like, even if they are buying it on iTunes, like, it's not like going to that record store and just, what is this record? Well, first of all, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a digital download. It's never going to sound as good as an actual LP is with the right equipment, you know? So, yeah, there's, there's pros and cons about it. I mean, of course, you know, we've gotten used to hearing certain things. Like, I, I have a couple of phonograph systems at home, you know, LP play. I, ne- I never. I, the last time that I played a record, I couldn't even remember the last time I played it. And you actually, have I, albums at yeah, the house? Yeah. I, I you've never taken one out and put it out? No. Well, let me tell you the flip side of that. The flip side of it as, as a fan. As a real fan, as a fucking fan of the music, there's nothing like going home, putting the album on, and reading that album. To me, that was an hour of my day, with tears in my eyes, the whole fucking time. I'd be listening to that album, reading the cover, thank you to the Cheritons. You know, I didn't give a fuck. I knew the recording engineers, I knew the tour managers, because there was nothing like opening up an album and taking the poster out. And, and it was David Lee Roth on Van Halen 2, and I ripped it up. That cocksucker. It was chained like that. I didn't like it. But the point <laughs> is, the point is that I there was something about that. When I download, uh, you know, uh, Whitesnake on my iPod, that's it. That's it. The mysticism, the whole thing about the music, yeah. to be strictly honest with you, I bought Sabotage next to... The Wing Fung Chinese restaurant used to have a little music store in North Bergen, New, York, New Jersey. And I remember that. You couldn't wait to get home with this fucking album. And let me tell you something. And let me tell you something. You had a better chance of stabbing my mother in the neck than taking this fucking album from me or than looking at this album. Because while it had the paper on it, nobody was going to look at this fucking album. Let me see it. No, there's nothing to see. No way I know. I think Gulu. You don't got to see nothing here. Come over later after I listen to it. I'm going to look at this album first. You take it home. There was nothing like taking that album out. Putting it on, and if it was a thing that album, you rolled a joint in there. If you people say that today, they still go to old album places, and they open it up and they see seeds and albums and shit, because that's what you did. You cleaned your seeds out. The seeds would roll, and then you'd roll your joint, you'd smoke it, and you'd read the fucking album. 
and you listened to the album two or three times, then you went out and talked shit about the album. There was no internet to fucking go on and say Rudy's album is good or oh, it was tremendous. There was no commercials in the 70s that said, get white. No, it was word of mouth. You went to the basketball court. Dog, I got the new fucking rainbow album. Oh, shit. Oh, shit. I got to borrow it. You ain't borrowing shit, bitch. Stop being so cheap. Go buy a fucking album. You know, that's how it was. That's the, they've removed that. Even if I buy your fucking DVD, I open it up and it's a sheet of paper. They don't even have that anymore. No, I want to see something. Read me something. Give me the lyrics to the song. Give me something. You know, I I, I tell people that the, the whole if you open up in through the outdoor, Led Zeppelin's last album, you take the album out, the fucking sleeve, you get a sponge, you wet the sponge, then you you squeeze that sponge, and you go like that, and all of a sudden the pills and everything will pop up to life. They're all different colors. They did things to make you. If you open up, yeah, some there girl, were like like four different versions. Four different versions. Yeah, yeah. yeah. If you opened up yeah. some girls, some girls was brilliant. Yeah. yeah. By the Stones, yeah. because you moved the heads. Yeah. So there was all these advertising for wigs, and you moved the faces of the Stones. Yeah. Led Zeppelin three was a thing you spun around yeah. inside the album. Yeah. How much would an album cost? Seven ninety nine. Okay. Eight ninety nine. Yeah. This fucking twenty million. That's unheard of. It was about the fans. It was about them. It was about every, everybody made a little bit of fucking money. Everybody made a little bit of money. Everybody was fucking happy. Well, well record companies made a lot made of Made a lot of money. money. Yeah. I spent $20 yeah. Yeah. for him and Ozzy Osbourne. $25 at the Palladium. Uh, for a I paid fifteen wow. fifty for Pink Floyd The Wall in 1980 at Nassau Coliseum. Why would I give you two fifty and go to fucking the Hollywood Bowl to sit there like a mutt? When people would kill themselves, when people were fans of the music. Fans. I mean, when you're on stage, you fucking cried. You fucking cried. You were like, God damn, I'm here. That's what it was like. I don't see that anymore when I'm not young anymore. You know the only place I see that? And I'm not a fan of the music, but like you know those like boy bands like One Direction and, and like how those like young girls are with like those kind of bands? So is that is that kind of good? I mean, in a way, nah. It's it's you're talking about the Beatles with chicks are jumping up and down and yelling and fainting. I'm talking about guys going to see. You know, at the end of uh, Almost Famous, when she goes off on on the fucking kid, she goes off on uh, the guy. Mm-hmm. She says a beautiful fucking speech about the fans. It was about the fucking fans, man. It was a beautiful thing when when you went to these shows. It was. It was the biggest thing in my... Going to see you at the Palladium was the biggest thing in my world. When I found out you were Cuban, you gave me hope, man. I, I knew I could do something in my life. I didn't have to stab people or sell nickel bags in Union City, you know? You know, I've, I've been a fan longer than I've been a professional musician. And there will come a day that I will stop being a professional musician because, you know, I'll be too freaking old to be doing this. But I can guarantee you, I'll never fan. stop being a fan. I'm a fan. You know, I can't believe it. I couldn't be a musician if I, if I was not a fan. It would be impossible. How can you be a musician if you're not a fan of 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 of, of what you what you risk everything in life for? I when I go see a band and I listen to songs, I'm watching them. I'm thinking about all the effort it wanted to put, and that's how I felt when I was fifteen. It's a lot of effort, yeah. When I was fifteen, yeah. I knew the effort that it took to do that. Because I wasn't doing it. I tried singing in the shower when I failed. Never mind. I knew the effort. No. I don't know why. I knew well, the not effort. only the effort, but look at the sacrifices. Because, you know, it's, I, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not making 
stuff up here. I'll give you an example, Black Sabbath, and I'm going to give you information that came down to me from, from Ozzy, you know, stuff that it was sitting around in the bus talking about. You know, they were kids. They were kids who one day they went to a theater, saw a scary movie, and figured out, hey, if we can make music that is scary as what the movie that we saw, we're on to something. So they went from being called uh, Earth, Earth. Earth. Yeah, to being called Black Sabbath. That was like, the, okay, we're going to be scary. So they started creating scary music and scary themes. They were still kids out of uh, Birmingham in England. They were trying to find a way how to get out of that, not have to be in the factory. You know how Tony Iommi lost his finger? This is what Ozzy told me. Um, he, was, uh, he was working with the, uh, at a factory with his dad in one of those press machines. It, it, it jumped his finger you know, off, and his father took him to the emergency, and the doctor said, listen, we, you know, I can uh, attach the finger, and the father said, how long would that take to heal? And he said, well, it's going to be a few weeks. And the father said, how about if we just leave it off? And he said, oh, yeah, he can go back to work immediately. That was the decision, deciding factor of him not having the full finger and having to have a uh, whatever, you know, little plastic thing. But then again, it changed the sound of music. He would have never sound the same with the full hand. You know what I mean? It just changed everything. So out of, the, out of that came this new sound, this Black Sabbath sound. You know, he played a different way, and it, it, we started connecting emotionally with it, right? Meanwhile, these guys were managed, the manager that they had in those days, they never saw any money. They just would put them on the road. Arden. No, this is before Don. Wow. This way, way, the original guy before Don. Uh, it's just like uh, if, if, let's say, if you were Ozzy and you went to the office and said, hey, listen, I haven't seen any money. You know, we just got off the road. The guy would <laughs> open the drawer, pull out some keys and says, yeah, you see the Cadillac? Yeah, it's yours. Now, they weren't aware that they were already paying for that Cadillac in <laughs> any ways. But that was kind of like, okay, well, I, I got something out of it. And, it would, and the guy would just leave. Meanwhile, all these guys were making money, <clears throat> money that the musicians never saw. And they just kept them on the road, kept them. You know, I, I've worked with some people in the industry that they make you think that you're working for management. No, the band hires the manager. The manager, any, the band at any time say, listen, you guys take a hike. You know, there's going to be some contracts and, and some certain things that you're going to owe them, just like in, in any industry, whether you, if you're a comedian or an actor, you have a certain management agreement and, you know, the guy is taking you so far in your career and then you... The, you know, you disconnect from that person, but that still you owe them, you know, some royalties or whatever. It's the same thing in music. But in music, they always made you feel like, oh, you guys are nothing with us managers, you know, which was not the case. So they always kept things away from you. They never allowed you to hang out with the record company people. If they, you know, by them, you and the record company people, no, 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 they had to be there. To make sure that they were the buffer, they were the the filter for you to get to the record company. Because if, if they figure, if you realize that you really don't need these guys, they're done. They don't have a job. So they always make it look like, oh yeah, well you know we're gonna keep you guys on the road. Uh, do you need anything like uh, some pot, some uh, some cocaine? Okay, I'll send you some on the road. And that's how bands, uh, you know, were were treated back then, before they got smart. Nowadays, it's very rare that you see that happen to any band. Well, when you are a musician, the ego is built by money. 
you know, uh, Sting didn't fucking get up and leave one day. When they were three little dirty kids playing music, everybody was in love. It's when money gets involved that it makes, it breaks up bands. And when you're just a kid, you're just excited to be playing Rudy Sarzo in front of oh, people yeah. in the garage. Who the fuck are you kidding? If I give you $10 in a joint, really? And I gave you a bed, that's a lot better than you were doing at home. So, I mean, I just want to do, when I first started doing comedy, I just want to do comedy. You know when I hate comedy? Now, when I got to deal with money. I wish I didn't have to deal with money. I would love comedy. That's when this is great. It's when money starts coming in that people, egos, attitudes get shitty. What the fuck, you know? I just watched that documentary again about the Eagles. You know, they went to them one day and said, this is us three, we're making all the money, and you're sitting at home and you don't get no money. I can't see that either. I can't see that either. Us five guys, we're a band, but you're not giving me all the money. And I wrote the fucking riff to Hotel California. What, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? I'm a paid salary. So that's one thing that's complicated about the band. Mm -hmm. I would have shot everybody in the band. Now I know why, you know. Yeah. It's tough. That's tough. The money thing is very tough. Yeah, but, and, and it's it's the manager's job or whoever is in charge of being the, uh, the counselor for the musicians. Where it could be a lawyer because a lot of bands actually have a lawyer and rather than to have a management that they have to give them a commission. It's up to these individuals to be the clear heads because clear heads will prevail in a situation like that. Rarely do you see it happen. Rarely the powers that be side with whoever has the most power within the band, whether it's the guy who wrote the songs or the guy who is the most popular, has the biggest fan base or anything like that. Rarely do you see somebody coming in and saying, listen guys, let's sit down and make this and work this out. Because once, to be honest with you, I, in certain situations I've tried to be that guy and <laughs> <laughs> with not much success, but at least I, I knew that I couldn't go to sleep if I just let it fall apart without me trying to be reasonable and say, listen, why don't we work this out? You know, and of course it, it, it did not get worked out, but nevertheless, yeah, people, it's people like that that really make, make a difference because, again, thinking of the fan, as a fan, if I grew up with certain bands and once they start changing the, the, the personnel, you know, the band members, it wasn't the same band anymore. I wasn't into the band anymore because it was kind of like, I grew up with lifers and teams, like uh, Mickey Mantle was a Yankee his whole life, you know, Bobby Richardson, all these guys, Tony Kubik. It wasn't like they were, you know, they were with the Yankees today and then they were with Boston the next year and stuff like that. I, I truly believe in, in people who are members of a group for, uh, you know, for their entire career. And this is coming from a guy who's played with many bands. But it was never my intention to do that. It's just happened. But ideally, yeah, I would have rather been with just one band. Of course. I don't have any aspirations of moving forward or, you know, moving on to something else when I first started doing this. No, of course not. I've been married for over 33 years now. Well, uh, 30, 31 years. You know, so it's, I wish I would have had a, the same type of music career, you know, for life. Be same married. five guys. Same five guys, so, yeah. or, or, or let's say somebody passes on, like it happened with Brian Jones, even though Brian Jones was out of the band, you know, by the time, you know, and then he passed away. But, you know, things like that. You know, just the same five guys, you know, four guys, whatever, you know. And, uh, yeah, that was my intention. I think about a band like Led Zeppelin, 
who had nine albums. These mm-hmm. are guys that were, you know, they had problems, they had drug problems, mm-hmm. the singer lost a kid. Uh, there were problems there. How many bands today do you see with nine albums? None, I don't know. How many? How many fucking bands? A bad company had a couple albums too, seven or eight. Oh, God, yeah, yeah. You don't see bands like that no more. The Beatles had 90 fucking albums. I mean, yeah, Tony Bennett's got 60 albums, but he's by himself. Yeah. You know, every once in a while he duets with Lady Gaga or some shit. <laughs> but besides that, you know, it's, it's, I, I've always been a fan of bands and music and what comes along. Like I said, I would love, I would be that guy that just rolls joints on the fucking tour, like when the Stones did something in Jamaica or something, just to see the process. Do you write your own music, Rudy? Yeah, I do. And how is the process from A to the album? I mean, how does that work? It's you by yourself. Well, it's 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 a matter of writing the music and then convincing everybody else that <laughs> that it should go on the record, <laughs> which is the toughest part part of them all. Yeah, because if you're not the singer, the singer is gonna gravitate towards the music that they write, because it's it 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 just makes sense. It's like to, telling a singer. Sing this melody is like a singer telling me play this bass part. You know what I mean? So it's it's you're 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 getting into their territory. So the best thing, you, uh, the, the second best thing you can do is to actually call and collaborate with the guys or the singer because they, again, you know, you're gonna have vocals and you're gonna have melody, you know, vocal melodies and lyrics in, in the song. So if you can actually collaborate with the singer and let him come up with you know whatever he feels comfortable. And or the message that they're going to deliver, then you're on on the right track. Is that like the hardest part? Do you think? Because I know I used to be an editor on TV, and I hated, even though I, you can't really admit it because it's part of being professional. But I hated when I would come up with something, and then a producer would come in and say, "Oh, I don't like that." So, it, like, let's say you were you were pitching your song, and they wanted to change it, or they didn't like it. What it, like that feeling must be terrible. That it's like the worst. I, w- I would imagine it's the worst. Yeah, it's one of those things that you have to just leave your ego out and just understand, you know, what's best for the for the big picture, no matter how screwed up the big picture might be. <laughs> you know, you just go with, you know, a lot of times you have to go with the flow, you know, of the end with the individuals and it's uh, it's tough. It's tough. It's like you imagine you trying to what you're going to be doing tomorrow night, three other guys. And you're gonna talk him to them into like, okay, this joke, that joke. You you tell this other joke and you do it this way. Can you imagine that? It's a pain in the ass. I was watching the the James Brown. Oh yeah, yeah, this brilliant. One. Did you oh, watch he, it, oh, Mr. Dynamite, with Mick Jagger when he talked oh, the to movie. Mick Jagger? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. not the movie. The one, the the, the documentary. It's playing now oh, on no, HBO. No, no, I didn't know that. Oh yeah, they. Oh. You haven't seen it with no, Mick Jagger. No. And they told Mick Jagger that in 1965, Mick Jagger was watching James Brown on the sidelines. They oh, were doing yeah, a show together. Yeah. And I guess the Stones were headlining him. Yeah, yeah. James Brown wanted to kill him because yeah. he wanted a headline. Yeah. He couldn't understand. They're like, it's a TV show. I don't yeah, worry about. Yeah. But they said when James Brown on the state went on the stage that Mick Jagger was in the sidelines, traumatized. And in shock. Yeah. From and they showed. Did you see it? I saw they they, yeah. they had that oh, scene my. in the yeah. movie that just came out and like yeah. James Brown's like follow that welcome yeah, yeah. to America. Yeah, yeah. He blew them off stage. Yeah. Oh my god! And yeah. that's when Mick Jagger yeah. says that's bullshit. He goes, as a matter of fact, it was a different audience. 
they had came in and changed the sound. Oh. The band. It was bullshit. It was a complete different audience. I don't know why they said that. He goes, yes, his performance was, they showed it. If you watch the documentary, they show the Stones, and they they show James Brown, and James Brown just took it to a different fucking level altogether. And they show Mick Jagger putting it together, but no, he didn't. Well, I mean, you have James Brown, who's the real deal, and then you got a bunch of white kids from England who were influenced by James Brown and and all the, uh, you know, all the blues players and all of that. So you have, like, second generation. So, but just like Elvis and all the other white artists could, they could actually relate to the white kids better than, you know, an Afro-American musician could. Even though those African-American musicians were brilliant. Oh, they were the best. Brilliant. The, the best. best. The best. The, nothing came close. Nothing. No. Well, it's, the, it's the real deal. Listen, I, uh, David Ruffin from The Temptations, mm-hmm. to me, yeah. has one of the greatest voices of all time. Mm-hmm. The problem with him oh, was yeah. drugs, too. and He was yeah. fucking crazy. Yeah. But The Temptations, uh, you know, and they were all from Jersey. Like, they were all, like, if you really mm-hmm. look into it, all those labels, all those kids were from Jersey. Mm-hmm. And I heard those songs, and I, I forget the one, This Magic Moment, that guy's voice. I don't know who sang yeah. that. Oh, Jay, Jay and the Americans, Jay uh, Black. Yeah. Are you fucking kidding me? Yeah. That that is just. I don't. Are they yeah. black? Well, the only thing black about him is his last <laughs> his name. Last name. <laughs> <laughs> Tony Bennett, cocksucker. Uh, we do this every Monday. It's my mother's favorite song when they came from Cuba. I wanna be around to. Pick up the pieces when somebody breaks your heart. Some somebody twice as smart as I. A somebody What's up, cocksucker? Nothing. Let me give some shout outs here. My man, uh, like I said. Greg and Lynn, thank you very much for coming to the show and give me the envelope. They're going to mail something for you, Lee. They had something for you. And oh, Lisa, thank you. again, thank you very much for the special gift from my daughter. Nathan, James Turner, I love you, cocksucker. Ahmad Alamed, stay black. Mitchell Convey, Derek Jewell, Cleo, happy birthday. You know we love you here. Mr. Whiskey, you're a bad motherfucker. Amy, XPDJ, I love you, buddy. Brandy Lynn, hang in there, you dirty bitch. Now, what's the pro- Project Rock? Talk to me about Project Rock. Oh, Project Rock, it's, it's well, now it's being rebranded something else. But it was just basically a bunch of friends, you know, guys that, that I play with, that I, that I know from other bands, like Tim Ripper Owens, you know, he was in Judas Priest when Alfred was out of the band. As a matter of fact, they, uh, you know that movie uh, Rockstar? It yeah. was based on his story. You know, he did an interview with some journalist in some magazine, and somebody took the story of him being just a kid that replaced this superstar, you know, Rob Halford from um, Judas Priest. And, you know, for all of a sudden, he went from a tribute band to actually being in the real band, and they made a movie out of, out of that story. So, uh, but he's an incredible singer. And then, you know, guys like Teddy uh, Zigzag, who played with Guns N' Roses, uh, keyboard player and James Kotak, drummer from Scorpions, and Kerry Kelly, who played with Alice Cooper, and we would just go to Russia, deep, deep, 
deep into Russia, Siberia, Kamchatka, you know, whatever, you know, not not what's considered San Francisco and, and L.A., which is St. Petersburg and Moscow. We really went in deep in there. And just bring music to the fans. You know, these are, we're, we're talking about what, it's been 20, 25 years since the, uh, the fall of the uh, Berlin Wall, you know. And this is a whole different Russia. You know, forget about Putin and all the uh, conflicts going on, you know, politically. Let's talk about the people. People are just fantastic. And they love American music. And they love rock and roll. And one of the things, the reason why they love it is because it was the music that they were not allowed to watch. There were no rock performers during the Cold War and, or music. You know, it was all clandestine, you know. You have to, like, you know, go in a basement, listen to the music with your headphones and all of that, you know. Was, yeah, you, you're... You made sacrifices. A lot of people went to jail, went to Siberia for because of you know uh, uh, embracing American music. And one of the things that I found that was really interesting was, and, and I and I and I I noticed this because you know being from Cuba, I was exposed to Afro-Cuban music, Afro being the key word. Then when I came to the United States, I started listening to blues. And then I was exposed to African blues. You know where it comes from, and I'm going. My goodness, this music, Latin music and blues come from the same place, Africa, you know, and they brought here through, you know, the slaves. I don't know, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a terrible period, you know, in history, but that's how, that's how we got our, our American music, you know, through that. Uh, one of the things you have to take into consideration is that the slaves in, in the Caribbean were allowed to play their percussion instruments because, you know, they were in Spanish plantations, you know, whereas the plantations in the United States outside of, uh, of uh, uh, Louisiana, which was French, they were not allowed to use their percussion instruments. So they, as, 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 as a way to survive their sacrifice, you know, the, the hardships of working in, in the fields, they would sing, you know. And if you listen to Cuba, to traditional Cuban music and the blues, it's all one, four, five progressions. You know, it's the same format, you know. And and I'm looking at it and saying, wow, how rich are, are the music of the United States is, you know, that came out of this, this terrible, terrible times in, in our history, you know, with, through slavery. And... And I think about not only that as, but, you know, us as individuals, when we go through bad times, you know, if you look at a diamond, it's because it's being compressed. We get our lives become compressed. And the ones that can actually survive that compression, we, at the end of it, we come up like diamonds. So if you listen to American music, you listen to the blues, you listen to jazz, all of that, it was a, a culture, a people that were compressed. The hard, the, their lives were so hard that at the end of it, the diamond that came out was actually music, American music. It's the most true form of American music that there is jazz, rock and roll, blues, R and B, gospel. You know the the uh, 
the the soulful gospel that we that we know, you know, where singers such as uh, Aretha Franklin came from, and so on. And uh, this is something that the rest of the world does not have in common with us. If you go to Russia, there's no African artists that have that influence in them. You know what I mean? It's not part of their culture. So when they listen to the blues, they're hearing something that, yes, it's about hope and faith, because that's what was happening in, in, in the field when, you know, when they were working, you know, under such conditions, you know, the hope and the faith that someday all of this was going to end and they were going to lead better lives. That is universal. And you can hear it in the music and you can hear it even really in the music in the notes that are being played all the pentatonic blues you know scales and riffs and everything that comes through that music and when you take that to a country such as russia that had their own period of hope and faith through music to be able to survive their lives they connect with it in a way that even most of americans today cannot connect with because right now we're connecting with electronic music, music created by computers. That's our reference. That's our connection. We are losing soul. We're losing our, our connection with our heart and our soul, our, our spirituality even. Because this is, if, you, if you listen to blues and jazz, it's very spiritual music because that's where it came from, spirituality. So then, again, going back to Russia, uh, one of the things that, that I learned from traveling there is that all of these dictators, communist dictators they had, they were smart enough not to interfere with their faith. They knew that they could not fight God. So they let them, they turned like a blind eye to it and they just let them keep their churches and keep their, their faith. And so when you travel through all these little towns, the most beautiful, ornate buildings, well-kept, is the actual church, the local church. You know, they're very spiritual people. Very, it's, it reminds me of Cubans. <laughs> you know, it's like this very tight-knit uh, culture. People really relate to each other. They help each other out, and they're very communicative with each other. You blew my mind. <laughs> Sometimes people blow my mind. You blow my mind with that one. You just brought it up. What do you? What is your position on electronic music, like sampling and all, and all that that's going on right now? You know, any form of expression. It's it's. I mean, if a human being can come out with like you know making music with uh, with farts, and it sells and people go for it, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to judge that. But to me, what really moves me, what really touches, what makes the, the, the hairs on my arm, you know, stand, it's, it's when it touches my soul. And so far, you know, electronic music doesn't do that to me. But then again, you know, you're, you're talking about events. Uh, EDM, they're very popular with the type of people who are looking after a certain experience. You know, and most of it happens to be, you know, they're they're induced by some kind of chemical. You know, yeah, it's it is what it is. I'm not yeah. making this up. You know, and ecstasy or whatever. So it is an event. It is a social cultural event. And you know, to be honest with you, if I would have known 40 years ago that I could actually get a laptop and go up there and make uh, millions of dollars, <laughs> the hell with playing the bass. <laughs> 
that's a good way of looking at it. I, you know, I don't even know what electronic music is. Well, from if what you I know, that, how bad am I? How bad am I, people? I'm sorry. I just don't even know what it is. I don't know what it sounds like. I don't know if it sounds the same. I, I think there's a difference because I know Russell Peters gets mad about it. There's a difference between some people go and grab old records and get loops and create music with actual old music, but then I think some of these other electronic music people are just like solely with their computer. They're yeah. not. They're not going and actually finding the yeah. loops and. Like yeah. it's kind of like what you were talking about when you were talking about the engineers and the the ones who really know what they're doing. That mm. I really like that because I'm a very techie person, and I would love to go see an old engineer mm. in the old studio, not with a computer, but with like the actual analog yeah. material who actually yeah. knows what he's doing. So like a, a great DJ yeah. who can go and pick up a record and mix it together and make it sound really awesome. I like that. But then again, I understand like the the dislike of just going on the computer and basically mashing it together. Yeah, I mean, you know, and, and this is sort of an art to yeah. that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, it basically, because, you know, it, music, music, it, it it's supposed to move you. It's supposed to affect you, you know, emotionally and put you in a certain state. And if electronic music can do that to a human being, there you go. That's the, the, the individual has accomplished that. Um, what I, what it's missing to me in electronic, you know, EDM, electronic dance music, it's the message. And I think is since there is no message, the individual can create their own message rather than to hear a song and even do there might be certain metaphors, you know. I mean, I know that there's writers that don't realize what their song is about. But there is a message in there that becomes your message. But then when music is delivered that intentionally there is no message whatsoever, then you're forced to create it yourself. And this, to me, is what EDM does. It's a you fill in the blanks as a human being. How is this music touching you? What are you getting out of it? You know, how's it making you feel, which is the most important thing about music. Especially if you're under ecstasy. <laughs> Those events are huge. They're like 100,000 people, you know. I all, know. You, know. I, I, you know, when that stuff came up, I was a little older, long in the tooth. You know, I would go to more con I would go to more concerts now. Like last week, Ray Canella, my friend, came from Jersey. I had a band with him in the sixth grade. We had a band. We played the Beatles Help from beginning to end. That's all mm -hmm. we did. We mm -hmm. lip synced. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, then we went loose, you know. We yeah. we do a Janet Jackson. Yeah, we'd, yeah. we'd start off with the album, and then we yeah. played live. And yeah. uh, he went to see Judas Priest. Yeah, mm -hmm. and I called him the next day. How were they? And he loved them. He loved the new guitarist. He loved the mm -hmm. the KK Doug, yeah, like yeah. Tipton. I think yeah. KK's Glenn, gone. Yeah. And he said Halford sounded great. Yeah, you know, the whole thing. And I yeah. love all that stuff. And it's yeah. weird that I would go to that every other night. But it's such a fucking pain in the ass, Rudy. Yeah. You know, I think when I was a kid, it was easier. Yeah. When I was younger, I would take the train and you yeah. drank some beers. Yeah. And but I got to tell you, the, it, the importance of that, uh, and I, I, I had an experience uh, recently. Um, back in 1983, Quiet Riot opened up for, for Judas Priest in England. So I got to watch him every single night. Spectacular. 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 Yeah. Then you forget. You forget, you know, eh, life goes on, you know. And then recently, uh, the whole band, uh, Judas Priest, did a rock and roll fantasy camp. And Halford, you know, he had just had some back surgery and stuff like that. So he was taking it easy. 
I gotta tell you, when these guys, the real deal, opened their mouth, and we were just talking about James Brown, well, you know, Rob, Rob Halford in the metal world, he is the real He's deal. The real deal, yeah. When he opened his mouth and he sang, he's like, I don't care who's in a tribute band who's doing this and that. It is only one Rob, Rob Halford. Halford. It's, and there's something about it, everything. Yeah, let, let me rephrase that. It's not something, everything about his singing, his voice, is the real deal. And he does stuff that you have never heard or probably might never hear anybody else do. It's so, it's, it's, he's like nobody else. And what's gonna happen is someday, hopefully not soon, but eventually, just like many other voices, like I've worked with, you know, Ronnie James Dio, another incredible voice, one of a kind, they're no longer with us. Maybe because he's still alive, but he cannot perform anymore or decides not to perform anymore. So to me, anytime that any of these artists, the real deal comes around. You gotta go. You gotta go. You gotta go because it's not only might be the last time, but it's a reminder. You must remind yourself of what the real deal really is all about, what it sounds like, what it looks like. You and you have to hear it for yourself right there in person. A lot of I've, I've heard a lot of comedians say they don't like going to see other comedians because they don't want to get influenced and steal a joke, or by mistake copy a joke or just be influenced. Do you still go see music? And I'm a fan. I'm a fan. I must. I must. And it, it it doesn't really seem like it's that big of an issue in music to be influenced by other musicians. It seems like everybody is and. They don't like, it's not as bad as like joke stealing. You should be influenced by everybody. Uh, absolutely. Everybody has something that's so unique about them. Truly, if you're dealing with, especially the real deal guys. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, guys that might not even be known for like being fast or, or whatever or heavy. Oh boy, yeah. Maybe it's the, the groove, the pocket. It's, you, have to, you have to have a groove to your playing. You know, otherwise, there's this is bullshit. Steve Avila, a dear friend of mine, put "Children of the Grave" on my mm -hmm. Facebook page the mm -hmm. other night from 1974 at the California Jam. <laughs> I was listening to it uh, this morning. Well, uh, this morning. What's yeah. the name of it? "Children yeah. of the Grave," 1974 yeah. California Jam. First of all, Ozzy Osbourne was Ozzy. It was John Osbourne. Yeah. That's when he was. I was trying. actually watching the video this Today? morning. Oh yeah, my god! Because somebody posted it. That's what yeah, happened. Steve yeah, Steve Avila okay. posted yeah, yeah, yeah. it. My buddy from Jersey posted <laughs> it, and I sat there and watched that, and I was fucking blown the fuck away. It's 1974. Yeah. No high-level technology shit. Yeah. This yeah. is just four fucking guys. How fucking crazy was Geezer? It's like the daytime too. Yeah, that's when they did tons of California yeah. jams. Look at the people, the amount of people. What do you, what do you clock it at? How many people are there? Um, it's like a whole, it looks like Woodstock. How I about 200,000? Ontario? Yeah. yeah. Ontario, and, California. And we did, the, uh, we did the Us Festival in 83. That was 350,000. So that must have been about 175, 200. Yeah. Just amazing. I would, and then they have another one. Of them doing something on, on Don Curse's rock concert or Midnight Special. Yeah. Them, uh, Black Sabbath. <laughs> and there's two guys with matching shirts. 
just losing their fucking head. It's 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 mine. I love all that stuff. So it's called Black Sabbath: Children of the Grave, 1974, yeah. California. Yeah, Jam. but then again, you know, I when Black Sabbath came around last year, I went to see them at the uh, Sportorium. How were they? The real deal again. They were actually. They, I thought they were better than I've ever seen Ozzy and 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 the guys because I you know I I, I play with Ozzy. And then about uh, the following year, with Quiet Riot, we opened up for Black Sabbath on their uh, uh, Unborn. Was that the um, 1983? They had the like the it. little the little devil on uh, Born Again. Born, Born again. again. Born, Born again. again with Ian Gillan on vocals. Yeah. Did you go see them? You went to see them this last time. Yeah, phenomenal. Yeah. Everybody Phenom- said they were phenomenal. Just everybody, phenomenal. Everybody. Phenomenal. Better than I mean, better than I've ever seen them. You know, everybody talks about John Gotti and. I think the baddest motherfucking guinea ever is Tony Iommi. I, I say I love him. I love him. Let me read Fit the sponsors and we'll Fit get you the hell out of here. Listen, man. It's always the problem with you. I don't have ten hours. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I had ten hours, you know, because uh, I consider you the real deal. You're the, the fucking you too, my friend. Savage. Yeah, and I was looking yeah, at me and Mono and shit. <laughs> And it's crazy that we have, uh, you know, the Cuban thing between us because I love it. It makes me. And today I met another. Today I went to jujitsu. Yeah. And I get in, and some kid comes right over and he goes, "Como está mi mano? Duro feble." You know. And I go, "You have because feebles. That's like a weird Cuban name." Yeah. I go, "You have family in Denver?" And he goes, "Yeah. How'd you know?" I go, "I hang out with Danny." He goes, "Oh my God, my uncle's got cancer." We start talking, and more and more he goes, "I listen to the podcast," and then. Uh, He's a fireman, you know, we talked, and on the way out, he gave me a Dick Van Dyke book, you know, so I learned how to speak English when I came from Cuba, watching Dick Van yeah, Dyke, yeah, yeah. that was yeah. my show, that's how I learned yeah, to speak yeah. English, yeah. and uh, he gave me the book, and he goes, this is for you, for all the excitement, you bring me on the podcast, wow. he goes, one of the things I was coming to see was you do jujitsu. he goes, so I brought my suit, just hopefully you were here, and you came. And uh, I just felt good. We were talking Spanish for a couple of minutes. You know, I got the Cuban pulled out of me when my yeah, mother yeah, died. Yeah. And I didn't have mm-hmm. it again. I didn't have it again for like five years. And now I'm way deep in it again. I'm way deeper than I am. And I'm, uh, My uncle called last night, my uncle that did the podcast for us. He's 76. And he goes, I've made up my fucking mind. But he said all this in Spanish. Yes, I will. I'm taking you, your wife, the kid, my daughter, the boys, everybody. We're going to Cuba next summer. He goes, get your passport in order. So now I got to get my passport in order, at least to go to Cuba. They won't let me go to Canada, but I got to go. We're going to go as a family. We're going to go as one big fucking. We're taking a Jew with us, too. What do you think? You think he'd come back? If he went crazy over that cloqueta. They were like, los polacos. That's where the uh, the, the Jewish community was in Cuba. Los polacos, you know. Los polacos, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah they, they, you know, they, they arrived in Havana, you know, from World War II, you know, running away from uh, from Hitler. Poland, you know. There you go, bro. Yeah. Really? There's some Jews in Cuba? You kidding? Shit. Wow. I, if, if you go to South Beach, there's like uh, oh, yeah, uh, South Beach. temples <laughs> everywhere. You know, Cuban uh, Jewish temples. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So you might have to go down there with yeah. this dog. We're going to Cuba. Yeah. I'm down. We're going. First podcast ever from Cuba. First podcast ever from Cuba. Have you been, Rudy? Since yeah. And you don't ever yeah, want to. Uh, let's see. I checked this morning. We're still a communist country, so no. So you won't go even to perform like these people? No. Fuck I, you know, my mom and dad. Never went back. They went back to visit my grandmother and never went back. But, you know, it's, it's, they, they sacrificed so much to bring my brother and me over here, you know, so they, they'll always express their, 
not us wanting to go back, you know, my brother and me. So I, 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 I respect their, respect. their wishes. Yeah. How's your brother doing? He's doing good. You and your brother in a band now for the uh, first time? Well, we did. We, we toured when, you know, with this Jeff Tate, uh, Queensryche. And it was fun, a lot of fun. You know, we hadn't toured together. <laughs> Actually, we had never toured together. Uh, we played together in Miami a lot and then and later on in New Jersey. But uh, we had never been in a national touring band before. Or international because we actually got to play in Brazil, and uh, so it was it was definitely a lot of fun. And you know, the next tour with Queens, right? With Jeff Tate. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's being rebranded as Operation Mindcrime. So I, okay, okay. So I'm not. I I I don't have the timeline of what things are going to be happening in the near future. But yeah. Do you still sing Silent Liquidity? Well, you're not allowed to sing that one. <laughs> Who, Jeff? The new band, yeah. I know oh, that. yeah, it's a beautiful song, and it's a worst. Okay, so we could do yeah. it, okay. Cause so, I thought oh, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought they had the same Pink Floyd thing going on, like Jeff Tate's Queens, right? Can't do the old Queen. Whatever. No, no, no. I think they some it has some, something to do with Operation Mindcrime that he does, Operation Mindcrime and Empire or something, and whatever. I, You know, I stay out of... You, I, you just don't give a fuck. You're like I, me, you just show up. No, because, you know, it has nothing to do, do with, with me. me. right, yeah. Nothing at all. I always tell Lee, Lee asked me a question, I don't know, because I don't even get involved. I just know this. Yeah. I mean, I it, keep if it, it simple. If it had to do with me, yes, I would get involved, but it has nothing to do with me. You're yeah. a fucking great guy, yeah. man. I love wow. just having you around. You ate the croquette. I went to Mambo. Yeah. We picked up some cheese. Empanadas. They, they, Did you like them? Yeah. El, el, el picadillo estaba excelente. I like it too. I yeah. like the picadillo from them. I'm telling yeah, yeah. you. My wife got yeah. the shredded beef. Yeah. I liked it. It was okay, but it wasn't my mother's. My mother's yeah. really doped it up with the olives yeah. and shit. But this picadillo is okay. Pasita. Pasita, the raisins. <laughs> oh, my God. My mom used to make that picadillo dish, which is chopped meat, basically. Yeah. It's, chopped, it's, a, yeah. it's sloppy joe for yeah. Cubans. <laughs> it's a sloppy joe, but she boiled the fries. The little potatoes and then fry them with oh my god and the meat with olives stop and a couple raisins with some white rice stop and a fucking mateba I almost brought you a mateba and eat on bed that's that? a, that's a Cuban soda mateba is oh. a Cuban soda and iron beer is the other one have you, you had iron beer? I haven't had it but I've seen it <laughs> he's seen it at the house the guy with the yeah. muscle and shit eat on bed iron beer eat on bed eat on bed we were talking about all those Cuban words like Nietzsche. Nietzsche means a black dude, but yeah, now you can't say it no yeah. more. But Nietzsche's even called himself yeah, Nietzsche's. Yeah, you know, in Cuba, yeah, yeah. it was wide open. They called themselves Nietzsche's. So and you call them like China, like all the Chinese Chino people? is Chinese. Yeah. Whether they're Japanese, Korean, yeah. Vietnamese, <laughs> Cambodian, they all fall into the one Cuban thing, Chino. It's una China, compadre. Papa, it's Chino. Whatever. And if they're Arabs, no matter what, Arabeki. Whether they're from Turkey or whatever. From Arabeki, compadre, Arabeki. That's just the way it is. <laughs> Let me give a shout out to my main motherfuckers over and on it. Making it happen to you. Uh, I've been getting a lot of uh, twits lately from people ordering on it. They really enjoy the Alpha Brain. The Alpha Brand, I always tell you, it's like going to a Chinese restaurant. The pork fried rice sucks. You got no business being there. That's their signature product, the Alpha Brand. It gives you focus. It, it helps you maintain your fucking awareness. And it's got a 100% money back guarantee. That's how it starts with Onnit. Go to Onnit. Go to joeydiaz.net. Go to the Onnit Box and Press. Church. Church. And get 10% off your first order. They have the Stay Onnit program. Whether you want the Hemp Force whether you want the, the Shroom Tech new mood. Sport, the New Mood. They got the new MCI coconut for your smoothies. Trust me, I wouldn't fuck around. You're going to start a new resolution this year. Start it now with it. 
Go to honor.com and press church and get your 10% off. And they got the stay on a program. I also want to welcome my main motherfuckers. I love them to death. IronDragonTV.com. Okay, for all your classic kung fu movies, all the It Mans, the, the, the Tai Chi Zeros. What the fuck is this? The classic <laughs> life, Enter the Fat Dragon, Life of a Ninja. This company is owned by Nanotech, where they sponsor fighters. They sponsor Tim Kennedy and Michael McDonald. Dave Foley's a great guy. We had lunch and dinner, and uh, I really like what he's doing. He's got a great program over there, but it all starts. Just do me a favor. Go to irondragontv.com right now. Press either Joey or Church in the Box and get two free rentals to start off. It's Roku TV, correct? It's Roku. So it's any of the Rokus. You just They, they have channels now. So this one focuses on martial arts. So just search Iron Dragon TV. It pops right up, and you put in the code where you get two free rentals. All right. And with that, you see what I'm smoking? It's a cigar. It tastes great. It smell. Does it smell, Rudy? No, no. Did you all. smell it? Okay. This is what I'm talking about. This is tremendous. You go to Vegas, you can blow smoke in the fucking 21 blackjack dealer's face. Go to hit Eat Cigs. This is what they have. They have beautiful cigars. They have beautiful e-cigarettes. Zero, eight, 16, and 24 nicotine milligrams. If you're thinking of quitting smoking for the new year, this is the way to do it. Hit Eat Cigs. I'm telling you right now. You get a 24, smoke it for a week and a half, then go to the 16, smoke that for a week and a half, smoke a few joints too, then you go to eight, then you go to zero, and bam! You're not smoking fucking cigarettes no more, and you maintain with one of these. Who's better than you? They come in different flavors, and but this is the baddest motherfucker they have, the cigar. Mm-mm-mm. Is that an co- electric Cohiba? It's an electric Cohiba. They get the smoke from Fidel's <laughs> bad breath, and they put it in here and shit like that. Also, to my main brother. What do you, Wait, use code word Joey's Church, and you get 20% off. Get 20% off on Hitty's Sigs. So use Joey's Church, get 20% off Hitty's Sigs. Edward Gaba, they're doing a great job over there. Please, support Hitty Sigs. You're going to fucking love it. Also, Nailed It Life. If you like smoking vapor, best vapor pen in the market, tremendous. They all, they're going to send me a script for something else. They just added something else to the webpage. Go to NailedItLife.com. Go to the webpage. See what they got. They got T-shirts. They got the best vapor pen in the market. If you put in the box, Joey Diaz, you get 20% off. So it's 50 bucks. You get it for 40 If anything happens, it breaks down, whatever you call them, boom. The next day, sent to your house. No fucking drama. That's hey. the way. We, that's customer service at their best. David, don't fuck around. West New York, Cubans. West New York. West New York and the motherfucking house. Rudy Sarzo, I want you to. Uh, I want to figure out how you get your schedule to me so we can put it up there so we can talk about you when the schedules come close to the United States. Maybe we can meet in the city and I that would be take awesome. you for Cuban yeah. food in Minnesota. Got good yeah. Cuban food. You get to Miami much? I was just there about a month ago. Tremendous, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, just to see my folks, you know. Tremendous. Yeah, it's great. I went uh, three weeks ago, but I watched the other night in the hotel room. I watched Anthony Bourdain layover in Miami. Oh, shit. Oh, shit, Rudy. He went to some tremendous places, but he talked to the most interesting. He talked to some Cuban fishermen that were Cuban, and after the revolution, they came up here, and they continued to do the same thing. So all their buddies, their Cuban buddies, they just fish all day and bring the same fish to the same restaurant. And whatever they have, like some days they have pago, some days they were saying all the fish names in Spanish, I was getting goosebumps. I love all that stuff. You know, last time I went to Miami, I realized something, Rudy, that, and you can't, you can't because of what we do. But if you're Spanish at one point, you gotta live in Miami for a month or two. Just to, it was different. I know some people don't like it. My mother didn't like it. My mother didn't want to be around a bunch of crying Cubans. She said, but this last time when I went, you pull over on the streets and they're drinking coffee 
and you go and they ask you if you want a cup, they invite you to a cup for a quarter, whatever it is, and it just, I like that. I like that thing. Yeah. I like that thing. Mm -hmm. It's not Starbucks. In Starbucks, everybody's on their yeah. fucking computers, look, trying to, who's trying to be the smartest one in the fucking room. In Miami, nobody was trying to be the smartest one in the room. They were just trying to coexist, man. And, yeah. I, and I hadn't been around that in a long time, and I really, really enjoyed it, so that's yeah. why. You know, I, I grew up there, and thank God, you know, my, my mom and dad are still with us. But it's a, you know, and they're almost 90. You know, there's that, that last generation, even though I was born in Cuba, you know, but we're talking about the, the last generation that actually left Cuba with their children and sacrificed everything that they had to give their children a better life, you know, in freedom, you know, because after all, that's what we came here for. You know, everybody had jobs over there. It's just a matter of like, you know, things got screwed up when communism came in and took everything away, you know. So um, all the sacrifices and it's that generation, you know, and I've, it, it's, it's, um, it, it's, it's, it's a bit sad because they never, like in, in my parents' case, they, they thought it was just going to be like, you know, we're going to be here in Miami for a few months and then go back to Havana, you know, because they, they left our place just like we were going out for the weekend. You know, everything stayed because we couldn't give any of our belongings to our relatives because, you know, the Comité de Defensa, you know, the, the defense committee, people were like, you know, they were like, tell us on us. And, and we, you know, we basically had to sneak out of our house in order to get to the airport and get dressed in somebody else's place so that our neighbor didn't see us. Like, hey, what, what, what you? Because back in the day, you, you wore a suit when you flew, <laughs> you know, yeah, a suit and tie, you know. And um, so it, all of this stuff, and then we, we, we get to the United States and it's going through the whole, you know, it, you know, the whole process of becoming Cuban refugees, even though we, you know, we, we enter legally passports and visas and sponsor and, and the whole bit. There's a lot of sacrifices, you know, and I see that last generation not fulfilling their dream of going back to Cuba someday because it's just, it's, it's, you know, every day, you know, it's like it ain't going to happen, you know. It, it, the only way for them to go back to Cuba would be to basically go back again under another communist country, you know, still a communist country. So it, it, it is a bit sad for me to, uh, to witness that that their hopes and dreams of that generation are basically... You know, my and, sister's there. Yeah. I never really met my sister. I get that oh, in Cuba? Me. Yeah, yeah. She stayed. She yeah. stayed with the grandmother and got yeah. married, and the rest yeah. is fucking history. So yeah. I want to do that. There's a couple of things I want to do. I know the situation. I know it's communist. I, well, what am I going to do? Yeah, exactly. You know, I might die tomorrow. I want to show my little daughter. Yeah. What? Hey, grandmother the, for the grave there's a side of me that that part of wants it. to I go wanna, wanna wants to really it. to go the only reason it. you know the only reason only reason why i don't go is Just because it's yeah. because of my parents that's no, that's the only I reason I, anything else i would really don't give a shit you know, I just want to, I would do it for my, myself, you know, just to go back and see where I went to school, where I, what I, what I grew up and, you know, whatever. I want to see the same streets my father walked. Yeah. I want to see the house where my, yeah. my well, mother grew up. I want to see the school yeah. they went to. Yeah. You know, I wanna, well, I see, I've, I want to witness that for firsthand. Yeah. I want to go back to, to walk the streets that I walked when I was, when I was a child and I left, I was almost 11 when I left. And I want to walk the same streets, if still there, or, or the same school, if, if the building's still there, because like, everything is falling apart, you know. All I remember is an ocean, really. Malecon. That's all I remember. You remember? I closed my eyes. I remember holding my mother's hands as a little boy, and that's all I remember. And then mm -hmm. being in New Jersey. Wow. 
That's it. I remember. Wow. But I, if you talk to me about Cuba, I can't lie to you. I don't remember the streets. I don't remember what I ate. I remember a beach. I remember mm-hmm. just looking out into the ocean. That's it. That's all I could remember. So, wow. I love you, Rudy. With all my love fucking you too, heart, bro, I wish you. Yeah, Manu. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Oh, please. I've been thinking about you for months, and somebody hit me up saying, "When are you gonna have Rudy?" And two or three people kept hitting me up. So I gotta get a hold of Rudy. I know you're busy. I'm gonna be at Philly Helium this week, and then Lee. We're doing a workshop next Wednesday for a one-man show. We're doing sort of like a testicle testaments. Me and Maj Jabrani. That's at the Ice House. We might do a podcast and mix it up a little bit. So. Uh, that's basically it, guys. I love you guys. Again, support on it. IronDragonTV.com, Hitties6.com, and Nailed It Life. And uh, we'll be back tomorrow night at 8 o'clock, guys. Stay black. What do you got, Lee? Do you have a, a website, Rudy, or a Twitter or anything people could Yeah, Twitter, Rudy Sarsa, Twitter, Facebook. Uh, tomorrow's my birthday, so if anybody wants Happy to leave birthday, any message. Or... I'll leave a message tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> Happy birthday. I'm not going to ask you how old you are, 29? Uh, 30, like the second time plus. You know, I'll be I'll be 64. God bless you, Rudy. Yeah. God and next you. year, 65. I get Medicare. You get Medicare <laughs> and you get 10% off at restaurants. Well, I think I already do that. Do you really? <laughs> yeah, AAA. Yeah, AAA and, and the double ARP. Yeah. I love you, brother. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you, Lisa. <laughs> Thank you, buddy. For doing this today early. No, it's okay. I And if you guys, I just started my first blog at com. If you went to check it out, I'd appreciate it. Show is brought to you by Onnit.com. Go to Onnit.com and use code word CHURCH to get 10% off of any of their great products like Strongbone, Alpha Brain, New Mood, Shroomtech Immune, Shroomtech Sport. That's code word CHURCH to get 10% off. Go to IronDragonTV.com. That's IronDragonTV. It's a, no, it's a new Roku channel with all of the great martial art movies, all of the kung fu movies like Ip Man, all of that. Use code word JOEY or code word CHURCH. And you're going to get two free rentals on the new Roku channel, Iron Dragon TV. Go to hitesigs.com. That's hit, the letter E, sigs.com. For the best vapor pens on the market, go to, that's better tasting, longer lasting. The proof is in the vape. They have e-cigarettes and e-cigars for you. Different flavor e-cigarettes and uh, different variations of nicotine in the e-cigars and in the e-cigs. Use code word Joey's Church to get 20% off. And go to NailedItLife.com. That's NailedItLife.com for the premier vapor pen on the market. Works with oil and wax. Use code word Joey Diaz, no spaces, and you're going to get 20% off your order.